Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is now completely virtual. This amazing operating system that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful package can now be digested from the comfort of your home or personal workspace. Reconditioning is about unleashing the human in human performance. It's about understanding why you or your clients are not performing or living your best life and giving you and your clients the skills for optimal performance. Our courses, R1 Foundations and R2 Designs take you through a complete process in assessment and intervention. Our Reconditioning Specialist Mentorship pulls everything together in your operating context, and our landmark program, Empower You, helps you navigate your own life so you can be your very best. For more information about reconditioning courses and programs, head over to reconditioninghq.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 off the price of any one of our empowering courses. Most recently, Matrix Fitness Canada partnered with Playball Academy Canada in Kitchener, Ontario to create the Matrix Conditioning Centre. The Matrix Conditioning Centre within the facility provides PBA athletes and coaches access to the best and most current conditioning tools to support their development. By combining the Matrix research on product usage with customized needs of the coaches, simple performance metrics are being developed in a body-friendly and progressive way. It is a hybrid model combining high-performance metric analysis with coach-friendly opportunities. Speed training, sprint mechanics, coaching, metabolic conditioning, warm-up and cool-down are all some of the examples of how these tools are being used. Playball Academy Canada was established in 2014 and has developed into one of the premier indoor baseball training facilities in the country. From grassroots player and skill development to the pro level, the facility and its programming continue to evolve and grow. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness equipment that serves exercisers and operators from all corners of the globe. When it comes to sport performance, Matrix Portfolio continues to grow through its partnership with amateur and professional sports organizations globally. To get more information on how Matrix Fitness can customize something for your team, contact Matrix directly at greg.lawler at matrixfitness.com and tell them Leave Your Mark sent you. I'm excited to announce our newest sponsor, Push. Whether you're coaching your athletes from the gym or remotely, the Push Pro system allows you to make meaningful training progress no matter where you are. The Push Pro system is the only coaching solution that empowers over 5,000 coaches to plan, track, assess, and improve athlete performance using real-time velocity data in one integrated system. Now, for a limited time, you can get 15% off any Push Pro system if you use the discount code PUSHPRO15. Just head to the Push website at www.trainwithpush.com forward slash performance and use the discount Discount code PUSHPRO15 to get 15% off your Push Pro system. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the privilege of speaking with an old friend, Sheldon Suray. Sheldon is a former NHL defenseman who played 13 seasons in the league for the New Jersey Devils, the Montreal Canadiens, Edmonton Oilers, Dallas Stars, and Anaheim Ducks. He was named to the NHL All-Star team three times and is perhaps
perhaps best known for his heavy slap shot, once setting the record for hardest recorded shot at an Oilers skill competition. He also has an NHL record for most single-season power play goals by a defenseman. Sheldon dealt with a number of difficult injuries through his career, one of which finally resulted in his retirement in 2015. He resides in Las Vegas, Nevada, and was recently engaged to his fiancée, Tessa Nick. And most importantly, he is the father of two amazing daughters, Valentina and Scarlett. We worked together from 2001 until 2007 while Sheldon was with the Montreal Canadiens, and I spent a lot of time with this man reconditioning many of those injuries. I look back with fond memories on much of what I learned about the game from Sheldon, and I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Shelley. Oh, thank you, buddy. So good seeing you, and thanks for having me on. It is... Um... A pleasure. I don't interview. I occasionally interview some of the athletes that I worked with over the, the over time. But I was looking at your Instagram one day, and I said I really should reach out to Shell and chat with them because we we had a pretty cool, fun relationship back in the day. I mean, you were probably the hockey player in my career that I spent the most time with, which is not really a good thing yeah. in some ways. That's that. <laughs> and you did teach me a lot about the game, so. I want to go back. You um, grew up um, on a fishing lake in a Métis settlement, and on fish, in Fishing Lake on a Métis settlement. And uh, I'm kind of interested because a friend of mine, Stephen Campanelli, you probably don't know this, but he was a Steadicam operator in Hollywood and became a director. And he recently did a movie called Indian Horse, which uh, won some awards at uh, different film festivals. And he did it about, it was about a young Ojibwe kid who had been put in one of these uh, schools and then came out and got into the National Hockey League and was one of the first kids in the, in the NHL and stuff. And it really documented a lot of the difficult challenges about being Indian and, and playing hockey. And I'm kind of wondering, as you grew up, what did you, did you, suffer the challenges of that or was were you sheltered from that in some way shape or form how was your childhood as a kid growing up Indian and playing hockey um you know I, I this is what I would say about it I would say that I was probably on the lucky side of things where I didn't look as Indian or native as other kids mm. right so I could fit in with my white friends and I could go back home to fishing lake and people would know that 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 was home for me and who my parents were um i guess growing up you know my mom and dad were both um fairly respected i guess in the community um my mom in particular and we moved away from from the metis settlement fishing lake and when i was like five years old maybe four or five years old and uh the reason for that is i have a sister who's two years older my parents really wanted to get us into school, uh, me into sports and uh, into something team oriented and get away from the community because the community, you know, presents some challenges with there isn't a rink nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, the school has, you know, 12 or 15 kids in it. And so there are some challenges with, with growing up in such an isolated community. Um, and, and that said, I guess living in a city, uh, I was able to to blend in more and, um, you know, my sister probably had a tougher time than me because she wasn't into sports. Mm. And once, um, you know, once I kind of got my footing uh, as a young guy into some team, um, 
team things, uh, baseball, hockey, stuff like that. It just, it, it made it a lot easier. And one thing that was for sure is that I have a really great family. My mom's side of the family is, uh, still all live in the community and uh they're they're all my biggest fans i think you probably met a couple of my uncles mm-hmm. at points in montreal and um they always made sure i didn't forget where i came from but they were always super supportive of whatever i had going on in my life whether it was you know hockey or school or j- just anything so mm-hmm. i guess the long-winded answer to your question is I grew up very lucky. I didn't have the challenges that other kids did. I was uh, very fortunate that I had parents who who thought far enough in the future to to want me to be uh, to have more opportunities than maybe some other kids. Hmm. How much was uh, hockey kind of a, a release or um, a disconnect for you from like? Obviously, your dad was traveling a lot with work as a truck driver, and, and your parents divorced early, and you lived with him and stuff. Was hockey kind of your sanctuary in some ways, or a place where? Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sorry, Scotty. Yeah, um, you know, it was again. I was really lucky. My, my dad was um, my dad was a, a, a guy's guy. You know. Mm-hmm how I got into hockey. And I think it's one of the greatest stories ever. I never appreciated probably at the time as much as I do now is my dad grew up. He had a tough childhood uh, foster home to foster home growing up in Toronto, outside of Toronto. And uh, when he was 16, he got a job parking cars at one of the hotels in Toronto and the Maple Leafs used to come in and he remembers the guys would come in and their new Cadillacs and they'd be wearing fur coats and they'd always have beautiful women on their arms. And he said, you know, if I ever have a son, I want him to play hockey. <laughs> and one of those guys who, who stood out in my dad's mind, who he did that for was a coach of mine in Edmonton, Pat Quinn. And uh, I think, you know, that to have the opportunity to see Pat and to see where I was in, in my life and uh, where my career had taken me and it kind of come full circle was, I think was a monumental um, point in my dad's life. And so for me, hockey was always something that, um, that was stable. You know, I could change schools. uh, We could move to a different town. You know, my parents got divorced and they split up and sometimes back to moms and this and that, but I could always skate and, and find a team. And it was always just new. Places may have changed, but it was always the same, right? It's like when guys get traded in the NHL or at any point in their career, um, some guys are really seamless at it. And uh, you, you know, guys are going to be okay. Like how could they ever, you know, possibly, uh, you know, not ever manage playing in Montreal? Well, you go to another team and they're all, you know, 25 great guys again. And so growing up, I, I think I really gravitated towards, sports being an outlet for me and uh, a safety net and something that was stable in my life. Yeah. There's a thread I want to pull on through this conversation that I've always noticed about you. And maybe, maybe it's something you recognize in yourself or maybe not, but you've always been a real um, fraternal person. Like you like being around other guys and sort of having a group of friends around you and stuff. And, whereas some people tend to be loners or very quiet or do their own thing. And was, was that always the way you were? Were you a guy who really just liked being in the team and being a part of the team or have you kind of vacillated from being a loner to a team guy in your career? 
No, I, I've always really liked the, uh, the camaraderie and the brotherhood of, of being, you know, around a team. Um, you know, I guess I found out probably when I was in my early teens that, uh, that I was never the most skilled on any team I played on. Right. I was never the, uh, I was never the guy that you're going to go, well, that guy's going to make it to the NHL. What I found out I did have though, was I really had a, an instinct to protect other guys. I had an instinct to like, make everybody feel like, um, Hey, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And as you know, as I got to 15, 16 and I started growing, I was always a bigger guy. So physically I always, you know, was a little bit bigger than other kids. And, um, once I found out that I, I could, uh, get respect for not only from other people, but from guys on my team by, you know, uh, being physical and standing up for them, that just kind of took on a life of its own. Like that was my way to get in the NHL was I, you know, I would work hard and, uh, I would do things that were, I'd get my nose dirty and, um, and that made me feel like I was doing something. I wasn't the guy scoring a bunch of goals and stuff, but I, I could always uh, be a guy that I always wanted to be a good teammate. Um, when when did you discover enough in your game? And I'm, I I know I'm going to circle around a little bit because I want to f- figure this out a little bit, but were you, you discovered in, enough in your game that you could play more of a role than a sort of a tough guy in a sense? Cause you, you had to play that role a little bit, but I, you recognize, and I recognize that you were all also a skilled player. So when do you, when do you discover your skills um, enough that you don't get sort of pushed down that pathway of being the big rough and tumble tough guy in the game? Well, I wasn't stupid enough or naive enough to think that I was going to be one of the toughest guys that, that was going to play in the NHL. Uh, I, I, I had an anxiety about fighting. I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I played juniors uh, coming up, I was, I was a tough kid. I was regarded as one of the toughest kids in the league. That in itself let me it gave me some room to try to work on my skills in juniors mm. and a couple coaches work with me. And, you know, uh, later on in life, a guy like you and, and when, when we're hurt and when I'm rehabbing from stuff, but um, I had a little opportunity to, to work on my skills. And, you know, when I was drafted, uh, I was drafted as a, a rough and tumble kid, but I was almost at a point of game in juniors, mm. uh, which was good for, for back then. It, you know, got mm. me drafted. And, uh, when I got into the NHL, um, I knew what my role was. It was pretty clear as to, you know, I was being groomed to be like the next, you know, Ken Dan, not, not Scott Stevens, like Ken Danico, right. The stay at home fifth, sixth guy. And, and you'll just, you know, be a good team guy. And that, that's kind of the, the groove I found myself in, in, in the beginning of my career. And I was fine with it. I was playing in the NHL, uh, you know, lower expectations were kind of good for me. Right. There was not, not too much pressure. I just had to do kind of the minimum. And just before I got traded, um, Jacques Lemaire, who I think is the greatest coach I've ever had. He said to me, uh, he was sitting me out one, one game and, uh, the game before I'd had a goal and assist and I was a second star. And I thought, you know, uh, now I'm going to play 30 minutes a night. And he sat me out the next game and he told me before the game, he said, well, after morning skate, actually, he said, uh, 
you just don't do enough. He goes, you, you have the ability and, and the capabilities to do so much more and uh, you're not doing enough. And so you're going to sit at that point. I was in the lineup every night. You know, I was, uh, I felt like I was really, really kind of finding my, my stride. And uh, so it kind of stuck with me, but I never really had that opportunity. When you have Scott Niedermeyer and uh, you know, Scotty Stevens kind of as your two defensive, those guys are playing the power play. They're doing everything. So I didn't really have an opportunity. The opportunity really presented itself when I got to Montreal and, um, and then I got hurt and you were with me, you know, you kind of know the rest of it. I got hurt. Uh, I was sitting in the press box one night in Montreal and, and uh, they said, you know, my career was in jeopardy from my injury. Um, maybe it was in, in jeopardy from being a fringe player. I don't know. But I heard these two guys talking beside me in the press box in Montreal, these two scouts. And they said, you know what, what, what Montreal really needs is uh, a big, tough defenseman who can shoot the puck on the power play. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching and I'm like, well, why can't I do that? Right. Maybe, maybe it was a little bit of ego. Uh, maybe it was a little bit of, uh, you know, I had a fire lit under me a little bit that my career is not going to be over. I, I, I just had just got married. I just had a kid. My career can't be over. Um, and so I really focused that when I, I made a commitment to myself that when I came back, that I was going to do everything I could to be a better player. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, the anxiety, the anxiousness that comes with having to go out there every night and look across from you and see, a, you know, another player on the other team, you know, uh, chewing glass and spitting nails and just wanting to come at you. Like that's, it's a lot easier to go out and say, Hey, you know, let's see if you can work the power play tonight. I found a lot of like comfort in like having that rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of just went from there. And, you know, I, I, God, I'm not naive enough to think that uh, I didn't have so many breaks along the way, but other guys got injured. Um, you know, preparedness when it met the opportunity, having a little success when that opportunity, and it just kind of snowballed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the game changed a little bit. And then we were having success in Montreal with some of the power play stuff. And it just, you know, it just kind of took on a life of its own. And, uh, you know, then the challenge was just to keep up with, um, you know, the standard you kind of set to always try to be a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt like that was an easier challenge than try to get tougher all the time. And uh, so it just kind of suited me a little bit better. You talked about the, the two Scots. So um, since you're talking to a Scott, what did those two Scots, like what did you learn from those guys when you went and spent some time in, in Jersey, like about professionalism and about the game? Well, my assistant coach at the time too was Larry Robinson. Uh, my first roommate in training camp was Slava Fetisov. It's like, if you can't learn something for some of the greatest players who've ever played the game, then, you know, shame on you, I think. And, uh, I learned that, uh, my skills were never gonna, you know, keep me in the NHL, that there was an extra gear that these guys who were the best players were usually the hardest workers. Mm. Um, a guy like, I, I could relate a lot to Scott Stevens. Right, because he played a, a similar game. I mean, I, no way am I comparing myself to him, but I could see. Well, he plays physically. He, he's a great leader. Um, he works his ass off. He's he's the first guy in the weight room. He's doing extra, and he's playing all these minutes every night. Um, so there was a, obviously a, a big uh, jump in professionalism from the best players to the next best players. So I think I learned that, but 
one thing that really stuck out with me is when I got traded, I got, um, we were on a road trip in Colorado and, uh, I got a call that I'd been traded to Montreal and the, from literally the moment I got the call, we were out having, um, an early, I guess a couple beers before dinner. And I went back to the hotel room because it's going to fly on a red eye that night. And by the time I got back to the hotel room, Scott Stevens was, was, uh, texting me. I mean, I hadn't talked to him a lot. I had, but I mean, he's family guy. We, not a lot of similarities. Um, he was the first guy in my room and he stayed with me till I left to get in a car to get on a plane. And that was never lost on me. And I, you know, I told him every time I played against him that, that, that it sort of changed my whole, um, perspective of like thinking that best players should be big shots. Mm-hmm. He, he left me with a few words of advice, you know, to keep working, to, to keep my head down, to be a good teammate. And, um, and just to try to be better because I could have a long career. And sometimes you hear that from your dad or you hear it from people who are close to you. But when you hear it from someone who you respect as much as I respected that guy, um, it really left me with a like, well, maybe, you know, maybe he does believe in me or maybe there is more. Um, and so I think from those guys that just learn what it's like to be a good human and a good professional. What was it like for you, uh, for your dad, the, for you and your dad, the first time you played in the NHL, like he, <laughs> what was that it, moment like between the two of you? Well, I was, um, so I was playing in Albany. I was playing the minor league team in Jersey and um, I got a call because a, a situation had happened in Jersey where uh, one of the guys was going to be out for a little bit. And, you know, I told my dad that I was going up. I got called up and uh, I think I'm going to play tonight. And I, my dad didn't say too much. It was, it was more of a good luck and, you know, hey, go get them and you're ready, that kind of thing. Um, but after the game, you know, after doing it, after like playing an NHL game that no one could ever take away from me, he, he was pretty, and, and I was pretty excited and emotional about it, but I was around my teammates were traveling to the next city, right? I'm not going to sit down and break down, but I, I remember how emotional my dad was and, and uh, how proud he was of me. And that was, you know, I'll never forget that feeling. Mm. Well, our paths cross in Montreal and, uh, you get banged up, uh, in your, the second season that I'm there, the first season, I always tell the story when my first season with the team was nine 11 and Saku gets cancer. And then, uh, I spend the back end of the season with you and him do. And I think ribs and stuff where we're all, you know, over at Concordia skating all the time and things like this, mm-hmm. keeping you in oh the game. Oh my God. <laughs> Nightmare. <laughs> Nightmare fuel. <laughs> Then you have surgery on your wrist, which is a thematic of, of sorts through your career. Um, and the next year, you're not able to to play at all. And we spent a lot of time together. And, you know, we've never really talked about the side of that. But I, I'm kind of curious, like, how scared were you about about the potential that it was not going to work out. Cause I remember there was times where there was a few times, as I recall, where it was supposed to heal and it didn't heal and it was supposed to heal and didn't heal. And we, and there was surgery and there wasn't surgery and all this kind of stuff that like, t- tell me about and tell the listener about that. Cause that, that was a tough time for you and, uh, and a, probably a very difficult year in retrospect. 
uh, that time I would say is the most challenging. Um, you know, I can, I can think of two times in my life where I thought my career was in jeopardy. One was injuries with you and one was in Edmonton because of a contract dispute, right? That one didn't stress me out. Um, it, it could end in my career, but it didn't stress me out. The one where I broke my wrist and, um, you know, originally it was, uh, I broke my scaphoid heart, your hardest bone in your body. They say to break or to heal, not to, to break, heal. but to yeah. heal. It only has blood supply from, from one side, right? Most bones have from double both sides coming in, promote healing. I broke it at the very far end of where the blood supply doesn't come in. And, um, and the prognosis wasn't great. It wasn't, no one would give me a definitive prognosis. And, um, you know, that's when, when I was kind of with you and, um, you know, here, wear this cast for eight weeks and then you'll be fine. And then going after eight weeks and then I, another four weeks and now it's 12 weeks. It's like, what? And now it's three months and, uh, okay. It's, it hasn't healed. Right. Let's, let's do another, you know, cast for another four weeks. Now it's like four months. I'm in a cast. Um, and then, well, still not healing. Now I got to go see a, a bone specialist down in Duke University. And, uh, you know, they're first a screw and then they're packing my bone with another bone from my hip and then this and that. I was for sure scared that my career could be over because that's what they were telling me. Like, this is not great news. Um but I, I just had faith it was going to work out. I just mm. didn't see it being the end. Um, and, you know, a big part of it, I guess, our journey together was the physical side of it's the physical side of it, right? Um, your, your body's going to do what your body does. Um, usually we're fine with things, right? The mental part of it is the one that's really hard. It's hard to come in and God, you can attest to this. There were days when I was like, Scotty, <laughs> right. You say one, one bad thing and we're going to have an issue today. And you had days like that. Cause you were frustrated with me. Right. Cause I wasn't, there was days when it was hard to put in the effort because you just mentally don't, you're just not in that space. Mm. Um, that was the challenge because it was so long of a process with, with uh, rehab with you that not every day was like, you know, there wasn't, we didn't circle a, a, a date on the wall and go, you're coming back on the 15th. There was always a moving target and that was super frustrating. And I'm really glad that I had the, the um, experience with you with someone that I trusted that I respected and that I really liked um, because if I was having that experience with someone that wasn't like that, I think it could have made a difference in, in how it all turned out. Hmm. Um, and the other thing that you just mentioned when we started, you know, SAC got diagnosed with cancer at the beginning of the one year. And uh, I remember how hard he was working while well, he was in the hospital for quite a while. I remember he came into our dressing room when, around Christmas, remember? And he had the mitts and the two gone and he was about 160 pounds and he couldn't shake anyone's hand. And it was like, it was heart wrenching, right? He played three months later. And I remember during the rehab, you and I were like, if that guy's playing, dude, you're playing, <laughs> right? 
And, and so I had these God shots all along the way that was like, just, just helped with a little bit of, uh, the kick in the butt I needed at, at certain times and the inspiration. I mean, when I was doing that with sack and they're like, well, you might not come back to play. I'm like, <laughs> if he's, if he's doing it, then I'm doing, I have no excuses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm really lucky that I had that, uh, that opportunity to do that with, with people that I really respected and, and who brought out the best of me when it was tough. It was really tough. And you, you come back from that, and you do, and that that was a phenomenal when when you finally everything was cleared and you were back playing the game. And you you fun, after that you probably have your two of your best seasons of your career. Um, and you make the All Star team, and 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 things start to really move. And in there, you you get married and you have your first daughter, and you're a dad. So how does how does that change you or affect you as a, when you first have a kid? Uh, for me, it changed everything. Um, it, I was really happy, uh, up until 2002, you know, my career started in 97. Uh, I was really happy until 2002 to be a participant in the NHL. Right. I was really happy that, uh, my career could have ended at any day and said, you're going down, right? You're, you're, we don't need you here anymore. And I would have been like, fine. I, you know, I, I did it, right? I made it. When, um, you know, when I, when I had a kid, it didn't really change when I got married, right? Because this business is kind of as usual. But, and I was hurt when, remember, Montreal let me go back to L.A. To, for the birth of, of my daughter, my first daughter, Valentina. And um, that worked twofold. The experience of having a kid completely changed my life, brought out a side of me that I never knew I had. I mean, I, I don't think I'd cried since I was a, a boy. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stop it. I was just overwhelmed with, like, wow. Uh, and anyone who's a parent can probably attest to that, that feeling. And there was also a sense of uh, of real gratitude to the organization and to Bob Ganey for letting me. I just missed a, a year, and they let me take off training camp to go for the birth of my daughter in L.A. and come back. And I, I remember telling Bob specifically, I said, hey, thank you. This is really wasn't expected, but it's really important, and I thank you. And he said, I know when you come back, you're going to repay us. And and that never I never forgot that. I'm like, Yeah. Absolutely, I am. And then having the birth of my daughter and then coming back, like, feeling invincible um, were really two catalysts to, like, to, to change the trajectory of, of my life and my career. Talk about Bob for a second, because, like, I mean, we were all there when, you know, he suffered a tremendous tragedy. And I, I he was the most impressive leadership man I ever experienced in my career and i just you know would be remiss not to even talk about that so like for you what was it like to work for bob Ganey? i would agree with you um look at the time when you and i first came to montreal the the organization was going through some through some shit like Mm -hmm. they were they were in it right they were knee deep in it um they lost a little bit of respectability uh, they had some management changes. They had coaching changes. They, they were going through some changes. When they brought Bob on, 
it immediately just gave you some stability and it gave you some credibility and his presence alone, right? He just walked around and you're like, hello, Bob. And he could be the driest son of a gun in the world, or he could say something that, that would turn your day around with, with joy. Um, but he never wavered from being a stand-up guy. And I remember when he went through that at Christmas time with his daughter and he, he came and spoke to us for the first time after anybody on that team would have went through a wall for that guy. You know, we weren't the most talented bunch, but it's, it's, we felt more galvanized as a team. I think after that, I think we even made a run to the playoff. If we didn't even make the playoffs, maybe that year, I can't really remember, but, um, really, really lucky to, to, um, to have a guy like that in charge, who was also a part of the Canadians history, who was, who was part of such a huge history with the Canadians. I mean, mm. maybe it wouldn't have had this, if he was a Boston, you know, it was Cam Neely who came in. So a very stand up, respectable guy, but I think Bob with his um, decorated career and illustrious career and, and his reputation, really, he, he really was a, a guiding light in that thing. And, you know, when I left Montreal, he was still the GM, you know, mm -hmm. I still talked with them with contract negotiations and stuff. And, um, you know, I almost came back there and I almost mm -hmm. came back strictly because I believed that Bob was, was going to do the right things. Carbo had come back and, um, um, my personal life was just, you know, I was going through divorce and having another kid. There was just too much personally, um, to make that commitment to go back to the Canada on the East coast from the West coast. So, mm -hmm. uh, but had it worked out, it would have been because, well, our leader Saku, uh, and, um, and Bob and Carbo. Hmm. Yeah. I wanted to talk about, um, and you, and you, and you for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I didn't play any part in that, but anyway, um, I wanted, because I want to go, into some of the things that happened vis-a-vis -vis your, your injuries um, and the extension of that. But I wanted to talk about, for me, one of my um, greatest recollections was you mentioned playoffs the year that uh, I can't remember what year it was, but we went to the second round of the playoffs. We played Carolina and eventually Carolina won the Stanley cup and we got up against Carolina um, two nothing. And we were playing the third game and Saku got a stick in the eye and he couldn't play the rest of that series and you were banged up like nobody's business like you were as we said abu you had this i think you dislocated your shoulder your mm -hmm. wrist was still giving you problems and i will always remember being in carolina in the uh, sixth game where we end up losing and at the beginning of the game i, I remember just to this day being in the back dressing room and and you coming in and Graham putting this brace on your wrist, you getting a shot in your wrist, a shot in your shoulder, getting all taped up, all this stuff. And you going out and trying to pass the puck. And I just, the reason I bring the story up is that I don't really think most people understand what it's like to the gladiatorial realities of playing professional hockey and playing in the playoffs and mm -hmm. what it takes out of you guys. Like you, you guys put yourselves through a lot. Like, Talk about that. Talk about the pain that you and and the stuff that you do to play the game. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, I think the analogy that you're you're your own worst enemy is 
it is really just sums up what it's like to to uh, to be a professional athlete. I, I don't. I think that hockey and of all the friends I have in different sports of professional athletes, you talk to football players like God damn you, hockey players, baseball players. You know, everyone. This season's such a grind. It's long. It's a lot of games. Uh, it's a lot of physicality. You know, we have morning skates, the days of games. Like, there's just a lot of uh, wear and tear. And you get to the playoffs and forget it. it's a completely different. Now you got a whole season of accumulated injuries, and uh, now you got to go and you got to step it up. Um, again, you know, when you see your teammates who are going through things, I wasn't the only guy who was hurt. There was guys who had banged up shoulders. There was a sack who almost lost an eye. I mean, there's a lot of things that go on. And, um, you know, if a GM is going to ask you or a coach is going to say, are you all right to play? Uh, no, not tonight. I'm, I'm feeling, uh, I'm just a little sore today. Okay. Uh, the next guy up and you'll never have the job again. Right. So you have a little bit of that, but you have a lot of pride, a lot of ego, a lot of like, man, I want to do this. I want to win for, for the guys. I want to be a part of it. It would really feel like shit if we won this game six and, and moved on to the third round and I wasn't out there celebrating. Um, so a lot of the onus falls on us as, as players to, uh, you know, to, it's just, Hey man, up, you know, mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think in those situations, it's really hard for our head trainers or for you who, who might be like, man, I just, he needs another couple days to, to just get a little better. It's really hard because there's so much pressure on all of us to get out there and perform and, and move on. And, um, you know, look, I had a lot of injuries in my career. I, I, I felt like I missed a lot of time and I felt guilty because, you know, I'm coming in and missing chunks of the season and now we're getting ready to go into playoffs and guys have been battling all year and my shoulders still bothered, but I'm going to be the guy who's, who's not going to play. Um, so I, a lot of it is, is ego and it should be more common sense. It's, it's always that old thing. You just kick the can down the road. It's like, I had, aren't you worried about injuries? I'll worry about it when I'm done. You know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. That kind of thing. It's just, uh, you just kind of kick the can down the road and you have a couple months in the summer to try to get better. And, you do it again. Mm-hmm. Well, I talked. I talked about it earlier about the fraternal nature of your life. But um, you had a couple, a lot of different buddies, and you used to sort of differently lived your life differently. I think than some of the guys in the team. And you always had guys like Andrea and Max and these different people, and you you liked going to the restaurants and things. Was that a, a form of sanctuary for you from away from to get away from the stress of? the game and, and to have a different bubble that you could live in from time to time. And that wasn't hockey. That's, that's exactly, I think what it was for me. So, uh, I'm not a loner. I don't, when I played, okay, it's completely different. If you ask me now what I like to do, I like to stay home, watch TV and turn my phone off. I don't need <laughs> like COVID's perfect for me. It just suits my lifestyle perfectly. Um, but when I played personally, I didn't like to be, uh, I felt that there was a hockey part of it and I always had to be on for that. Um, 
And then there was my life part of it where I could go out with my buddies and we could go to a restaurant or a movie or all-star break on vacation with guys who aren't a part of my team. Cause would, would always, you know, I've done the all-star breaks with teammates and it's, there's no break. Right. <laughs> um, and so I, I like the other thing, Scott, is I, I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed playing in a market like Montreal. I loved it because they, they treated you different. You were a celebrity there. Um, so we, they would take care of us at restaurants. We'd get, you know, if I had family and it, it looked like we were the, I was the biggest shot in town, you know? And, and I, I liked that. There was a certain pressure sort of that fueled me with that. It's like, if I don't play well, if I don't take care of my job, the rest of this goes away. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause they don't care if you're, if you're not playing games and, and doing what you're supposed to do there, then you're not getting those perks. Um, so Montreal in particular was, was a place I really enjoyed the lifestyle of it all. You're still always around hockey, but you could kind of slip out here and there and, and uh, you know, just, just kind of do your own thing. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to you when, you know, you became a free agent and to your point, I, I think like many of the other guys in the team would have loved that you would have resigned, but obviously, you know, I, I remember you telling me you, you wanted to try to move closer to the West coast because of the kids and Angelica and all this kind of stuff that was going on with your life. And so why do you end up, cause I never really talked to you about it. Well, why do you end up in Edmonton then? Like why, why did you choose to go to Edmonton? Was it because you wanted to go back close to your, closer to your mom or to live out that experience of playing for that club? Or what was the reason that you ended up there? So uh, a lot of different reasons. If you remember at the end of that season, I had another shoulder surgery. Mm-hmm. So that was number five on that shoulder that I had. Right. Um, I remember talking to Bob and him saying, okay, this is the contract we're going to give you. And if you want it, it's yours. If not, we're going to go get another guy. And we had, Anyone who tells you free agency is a breeze, yeah, you know, at the end of it, and you get eight million dollars or six million dollars a year, that's that's great, right? But it's it's super, it's very hectic. And uh, I have my buddies, I tell it to my buddies and my family sometimes, and like, oh yeah, poor you, right? Really stressful. But in my situation, uh, I was my wife was pre- was pregnant with uh, our second baby, um, and she'd just been born in in may uh so she was you know season ended and then i had shoulder surgery and then i had my child number two and um there was there was uh opportunities to sign on the west coast there were things that were more important to me it wasn't there were some you know personal decisions like i said that had to be made and and that weighed into it and free agency is funny things come and go like and it's not always dependent on me. It's other guys too. They're trying to sign other guys, right? So opportunities, if you say, give me a minute, other guys get plugged in and uh, that's the game. And so uh, a lot of teams were really, my biggest contracts were from Montreal and another team on the East coast, Um, more money than I signed for, but it wasn't fitting into what was important to me at that, at that time. And, um, you know, things just started, uh, 
plugging up holes that I thought I was going to fill, you know? Uh, and so you don't want to be the guy without the chair at the end of it. And so we, we looked at our options. A lot of teams wanted me to come in for another medical, which I wouldn't have passed at that point because I just had surgery. And, um, you know, when it comes down to it, it, it was, uh, was feeling the squeeze a little bit. And I knew I was going to get a divorce. Things weren't very great in my personal life, uh, but I just had a baby. And uh, there were some things then that, you know, the goalposts kind of changed within eight or nine days. It really changed. The landscape really changed. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that were important to me um, now were, you know, LA wasn't going to fill it or Anaheim wasn't going to fill it, but you know, the, the family stuff, the, uh, you know, being around my family, having a baby, being around my family, that became more important. Talking to my family more, my dad, my mom, you know, the, uh, the chance to put on an Oilers sweater, it, it all, it all started to make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it wasn't like a, a hot way. I wanted to get over Montreal to be in by the beach and in my shorts. It was, it was, there was a lot of other things that had to be, you mm-hmm. know, considered. And, uh, at the end of the day, I thought I made a choice that, uh, that I was happy with and that my family was happy with. Was it perfect? No, but, but it checked off a lot of the boxes. Mm-hmm. So you go there and I remember I was listening to the, your podcast with Cal Callahan and you talked about, um, sitting in the training room and the head therapist who was probably Ken Lowe, I would imagine, but you, mm-hmm. he, the GM comes in and says something sort of off the cuff to you about, you know, sort of an expectation that you're going to be playing and, and you kind of look at Ken and go, does he not, does he not fucking know I have a shoulder injury or something right. like that? Wow. Yeah. Like that, that was an interesting, that was an interesting moment. I'm sure. Well, again, uh, I just signed there. I just had shoulder surgery. Uh, I wasn't going to be good to go until about November. You know, we're talking mid-September now. And I get into the dressing room and there's, you know how it is, our, our, the, the most veteran guys go first for their testing, right? Um, so you've earned that right. The most veteran guys go first. And so I was in there early with the veterans of the team, our captain, Steve Stales, Ethan Morrow, Dwayne Rollison. Um, and, uh, and, and the coach came in. Yeah. Craig McTavish came in and he goes, Oh, just guy I wanted to see. And I'm like, Oh, your ears must be burning. He said something like that. And I said, Oh, all good things. And he said, no, he goes, are you going to fucking play or what? We just signed you, you know, to this. And so I got these four guys looking at me. They're my brand new teammates. It's my first day meeting a couple of them. And, I, you know, my trainer was probably caught off guard. I don't think he meant to throw me under the bus or not stand up for me. I think it was just a situation. And that's how we started. And it was a, it was a rocky. I have a lot of love actually for, for Craig McTavish. I don't think he was informed enough. He just maybe thought I was taking my time, whatever, you know, I just signed a big deal and he didn't, they didn't want any prima donnas playing in Edmonton. That's not the culture there. And uh, so I think he was just, making himself uh, heard and, and felt in a certain way. And, but it made me feel a certain way too. And I put my back up against the wall and uh, not that that's why anything went sour there, but it was, uh, it kind of gave the start to things that, uh, that was a little rough. <laughs> <laughs> 
you end up playing for like with those two, you know, you play with the devils, then you come um, to Montreal to arguably one of the most enshrined teams in the league. And then you go back to Edmonton where you've got the, you know, the history of Gretzky and Messier and the whole nine yards. And now you're in Edmonton and you're, there must have been some like expectation of what the organization was going to be and what it turned out to be. And were those challenge, was that challenging for you? It was very challenging. So Kevin Lowe is from Montreal. Uh, I would say that Montreal is, especially when, when, you know, George Gillette came in in our time was as classy as it gets. There was no stone left unturned to make sure that our families were taken care of, uh, that they were included in things that we felt like when we came there, that we were, it was prestigious and we're with the Montreal Canadians. Well, Edmonton, you know, had the old arena and they had some things that was fine. You know, okay. You don't have the newest arena whatever. I grew up an Oilers fan. I didn't grow up a Montreal fan. I, most of my family, but heads over Edmonton or Montreal. But when I went to, went to Montreal and I put on a Canadian's Jersey, I was like, there was something that came over me that was like, this is different. This is like, wow. And um, maybe it's because a little of the, the shine and worn off that had played a few years. But when I went back to Edmonton, um, Kevin Lowe had said to me, he goes, we want our organization to be to the standard of the Canadians. What can we do to, you know, make it like that? You let us know if there's things that, you know, you see that we can, we can do this better. We had just got a new owner who's still the owner there, Daryl Cates. And so money wasn't going to be a problem. Um, there was no talk of really a new arena or anything at that point, but um, they, they wanted to, they wanted to get a little more current. The attitude in Edmonton had always been, well, it was good enough for Gretzky and Messier. It's good enough for you. That's always been the attitude there. And, um, you know, things, we weren't a very good team, but I could see they were making it hard for us off the ice to be positive. You know, in Montreal, we weren't great, but there was like, they were trying new things. Our wives' room was great. So I wasn't worried about my my wife and my daughter when we were there. I knew they were safe and taken care of. Um and these were some of the things that were slipping or they never had, it wasn't slipping. They never had it. They never had that standard in Edmonton. And a couple of times that I had said things, you know, that, well, this happened in Montreal and maybe we could consider getting, how about just a wives lounge where our wives and our children can go. So when I walk out, there's not a bunch of drunk guys telling me that I'm overpaid and that I'm a bum and they're not feeling safe. Um, and basically I was told to, uh, shut up and, and do my job, you know, uh, again, they didn't, they didn't need any silver spooners. I was on a big contract and, uh, it was good enough for the orders in their heyday. And that really, um, that really rubbed me the wrong way. You know, yeah. if we were, it was just, a, it was just, a uh, it was really tough to go from the standard of the Montreal Canadians to the standard of another team at same league but it didn't feel like it. The Push Pro system is your all-in-one coaching solution. Used by professional sports teams in every major league globally, the system includes 
Portal, an online data management system that helps you program sessions faster, the PushBand 2.0, a wearable accelerometer that tracks key performance metrics, and the Push app that lets you see the velocity and power of each rep in real time. Now, for a limited time, you can get 15% off any Push Pro system if you use the discount code PUSHPRO15. Just head to the Push website at www.trainwithpush.com for forward slash performance and use the discount code pushpro15 to get 15% off your push pro system. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of exercise equipment managed locally in the countries it serves. In Canada, Matrix Fitness has 56 employees, four offices, a technical support team across Canada covering all regions and serving some of the biggest fitness and hospitality brands in your community. In 2021, Matrix will celebrate its 20th anniversary and sixth year within Canada. An emerging market for Matrix is its sport performance and athletic training portfolio. While Matrix Fitness has gained significant momentum in the fitness market, strength and conditioning is evolving, and for that they need to collaborate with some good people. In the second half of 2020, Matrix launched its own Canadian Ambassador Program, a partnership that looks to do exactly that, work with good people who serve athletes. This is an opportunity to be part of a growing and emerging brand in the ever-changing industry of sport performance. For more information on their ambassador program and exploring the details of how it might work for you, please contact the Vice President of Business Development, Greg Lawler. Please reference the Leave Your Mark podcast and reach out to Greg at greg.lawler at matrixfitness.com. Your second year there, you get back to playing. I remember one of the last times you and I actually saw each other was the NHL All Star game in two thousand eight nine season because that was my mm-hmm. last season, and I have a picture of uh, you and I. And <clears throat> I remember, and then the next year again, you got hurt again, and and then this whole thing starts going down that gets really ugly, and you end up being in in Hershey and stuff. And um, I. I've never spoken to you about that story, but I listened to it with on Cal's podcast and uh, I'm more interested in just, you know, you went down and you start, you, you accepted it in a sense because you had to, and did you, how did that go with the guys? Like you, you, you just went down and tried to be a part of the team and, and, you know, pl- played with the boys. Like how did, yeah. Yeah, well, that's Must have been a strange period for you. It, it was it was really a hard period. It was really uh, it, it hurt my ego, uh, my pride. I guess to set the table a little bit, when my first year in Edmonton wasn't very good because I got hurt. I came back too early to try to play. I got hurt. The first season was kind of a wash. The next season, I came back and I played in the All Star game, uh, and and you know had a great season. My next season, I was having another great season, and I got hurt. And I hurt my hand in a fight, and I'd had a couple surgeries on it. Um, at this point, I had wanted to be traded. The team wasn't very good. Uh, I was button heads with with coaching staff. I just I wasn't seeing eye to eye with with a lot of things. But I was going on. I was doing my job, and so I got hurt. And um, that's so the Olympic break was that year. I got hurt and I had surgery right before the Olympic break. Well, over the Olympic break, I got an infection in my hand. I had a couple pins in my hand. I got an infection. I fly back cause I got to see the Edmonton, uh, 
doctor before they go on a road trip to Nashville. So I fly back and uh, I was so sick from the time that I got on one of my pins was coming out the day before I had to go back and I just pushed it in like a hot knife through butter. Like no big deal. No. I was like, wow, that's weird. <laughs> but the next day I'm, I'm sitting in the airport. I checked in and I have just a carry on bag and I sit in the airport chair and I, oh, I couldn't put my elbow on the chair. I'm like, what happened? And uh, my, my elbow was swollen, like the size of a, a, a small apple. I'm like, what? I don't remember even anything happening. A three-hour flight, my trainer picked me up in the team's equipment van, in the equipment truck, and said, I'm taking you to, to the, you know, to the doctor. I go, the doctor's not in, right? He's not there to see me. He's too busy. I said, okay. I go home. The team's leaving the next morning on a road trip to Nashville. Um. I go home and I get so sick, Scotty, that I caught a call our trainer and I say, like, I, I got to go to the to the hospital. And, you know, I suck up a lot of, there's a lot of things you just suck up. It's like, oh, get get over yourself. This was different. I was super sick. And uh, he said, well, don't drive because I was telling him some of my symptoms. And he said, you know, get an ambulance. And so I called an ambulance and I called my dad and I said, dad, this is what's going on. He said, I'm going to be there. I'm going to get you there. And so instead of going to this hospital, he was going to take me to our team doctor's clinic. I went to the clinic. The doctor seen me. He got me in an ambulance from there. And I went to the hospital. I had gone septic and uh, had this infection, a staph infection. So I wake up in the hospital the next morning after another surgery. And the lady is, uh, is standing there and she's, she's, uh, you know, wiping my hand off. Cause I had to have this cast put, it's not a cast, it was a splint and it bended my hand back this way because when it heals, it heals back this way. So it was like stretched out and I had these big cuts and like gauze was pus and it was gross. Right. And I wake up and I go, uh, I go, Oh, I said, she's cleaning my bandages. And I said, uh, Oh, what, what are they going to have to do? Cut it off. And she said, oh, honey, that's, that's not what we're worried about. She goes, if this gets to your heart, you got issues. And the way she said it, I knew she was serious, right? Wow. So, so that happens. Uh, but I didn't have time to call our team trainer. Like, all oh, this happened very quickly within a space of like, oh, 12 hours, right? Well, I'm in the, the hospital and the team gets back. They, they get word that I, you know, my hand was hurt or something. And so Kenny Lowe came to see me in the hospital and he says, uh, how you doing? And I'm still, I was in ICU for 10 days. So I'm, I, I just gotten like out of ICU and the lady says, uh, or Kenny says, how you doing? I said, you know, I've been better. And, uh, he said, yeah, you know, uh, he goes, Kevin and Daryl, are thinking that you're milking your injury. <laughs> and I'm all hopped up on drugs. I just, you know, had another two surgeries while I was in there on my hand. And so I left the voicemail for, for them. And I told them what I thought. And, uh, during the time that I was in the hospital, no one had ever, you know, no management had ever come to see me or anything. Not that they needed to, but I'm just setting the table of like, mm -hmm. no one had come in and been like, Oh, wow. That, they were going to cut your hand off. You weren't, you know, you, you weren't faking your injury. Like this was, it was like, they were going to cut my hand off. And, um, 
And so at the end of that year, you know, I, I hadn't talked to anyone in management. And so I went and voiced, I, I went and said something publicly, like they can just trade me, you know what I mean? And whatever. Well, I knew that there was going to be stress that summer. I still had two years left on my contract. And so, you know, I go into Edmonton for training camp and I skate with the guys. I'm feeling good. I have like fucking chip on my shoulder, the size of the Grand Canyon. I'm ready to, you know, come back. And uh, I skate the first day, two days before training camp, a day before training camp. And uh, that night, GM comes out and says, I'm not invited to training camp. So I pack up my bags. I go back to L.A. And now I'm in a holding pattern in L.A. for about four weeks. Like, what am I going to do? I'm, you know. Or about season's about to start. Wow. And then they they traded they sent me to Hershey, which was Washington's farm team, and not even their own farm team because they thought that I would have a bad attitude and poison these young guys. <laughs> and so my agent told me about it. And um I talked with my dad, I talked with my agent. You know, the first thought is I'm not going there, right? I'm not who don't they know? And and then it was like, okay, I I have a, I have a real opportunity here to show some, show some character, right? I have an opportunity to just take it and, uh, and do my best with it. It's still a great opportunity. I'm still getting paid. And so when I went down there, yeah, it was a challenge. It was, it's a whole different bottle of wax mm-hmm. and, and all that, but I was greeted, uh, very, very warmly and kindly by the guys there. And, uh, and by the coaches and stuff. And in my third game, I broke my hand in a fight, you know? And, and so I called them up. I called the, the GM at the time it's Steve Tambellini. And I said, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? And now I can't play. Now I just broke my hand again. And now I can't play for another three, four months. Um, and so I, I was stuck down there, you know, uh, there was a couple opportunities, I think, during the year for a couple scouts had come to see me play, but I hadn't played. I hadn't skated. I hadn't rehab. You know how it is in the NHL. Mm-hmm, they have mm-hmm. five guys on you to, we're getting you back. They're just like, you know, we got some ice from 10 to 12 if you want to go and shoot some pucks. So, um, so that was, that was definitely a challenge. Um, but I, I controlled the things I could control. I just knew that, uh, there was going to be some eyes on me from a lot of people, uh, you know, the, the story had been, had been promoted as such. That I was a bad guy, a bad teammate of cancer. And I knew that there was, it was a chance to go down there, be a good guy and uh, be a good teammate and just maybe show them a thing or two about how things work at the next level. And uh, so I took that opportunity. I ended up having a lot of fun. It, w- it was hard, but I ended up having a lot of fun and, uh, and it all worked out the next year. Edmonton bought me out and, you know, we were able to turn the page, but you know, I, I say all this too, and I don't want to sound like sour grapes. There were some really uh, amazing times in Edmonton. You know, my parents got to see me put on an Oilers jersey. There was plenty of my mom's and dad's friends who we got tickets to who got to come tour the Edmonton Oilers dressing room. That's a huge, uh, that's a huge thing for some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a lot of people wearing Saray jerseys in the stands, you know, it, 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 there was a lot of things that were good and heartwarming in the year that I played well. And, um, you know, got, got picked to start in the all-star game. Uh, the whole city was so pumped and it felt so good I, that year, Scotty, you know, representing the, you know, how I felt about playing for the Canadians and, uh, 
what it meant to me to represent the Canadians in the All-Star game. I really, really wanted that. That was a goal of mine before the season started. I really want to play in an All-Star game in this jersey. Um, and, and the All-Star game was in Montreal that year. And so there was a, there's a, there's a lot of good memories. It's just, it was a real, um, it was a real um, opportunity to see that it, there's a business side to things. It isn't all restaurants and big paychecks and, uh, you know, fancy hotels on the road. There's a business side to things that's sometimes ugly. Hmm. And, um, you know, there's always someone who, who has more control than you. So um, it was a learning experience. So, so then you, you sign in Dallas for a year and then you end up in Anaheim. <clears throat> and as I understand, you got injured again. And, and it was basically at that point, um, you weren't probably going to play again for that organization. And they kind of bought you out at the end, I believe is, is that not the case? And you were kind of at this point, your, your career's ending in some sense, prematurely, right? I mean, like you're not really expecting yeah. it then. No, it did end prematurely. So I had a good year in Dallas, uh, you know, kind of a, a bounce back season, a comeback season. So, you know, some, some gas left in the tank. Was that the year was yeah. there a whole bunch of Canadians guys like Ribeiro was there and, or. Yeah. The ribs <laughs> was there. Robida. <laughs> Robida. Uh, I remember there was one year I looked at the Dallas roster. I'm like, they just signed everybody from Montreal. <laughs> bunch of Canadian guys. Um, so that was actually fun. It was interesting to see other guys' personalities in other cities like Mikey Ribeiro uh, in Montreal. There's a lot of eyes, a lot of pressure on them in Dallas. Great guy. He could just be himself. They didn't care if he wore his hat on backwards and baggy pants. They just didn't care. Hmm. He, no one knew who he was. And, uh, he, he, I'm glad I got to know him in a different setting. Cause he actually turned out to be a, a very, very good guy. Uh, very good teammate. So that year was, was, uh, great. Um, I knew that I set myself up for another contract somewhere at that point. It became, a, you know, I was either going to sign back in Dallas or somewhere close to LA. So it could be around my kids. Um, we just see how that played out. And, uh, when free agency started, Sak- Saku was with the ducks and he gave me a call and he said, do you, do you still think, you know, you got some, you still have the desire. You're still motivated to play. And, uh, I said, yeah, he said, okay, I'll put in a good word for you. And he did. And, uh, that's just the kind of guy Sack is. He's mm-hmm. one of the best human beings on the planet. I don't have to tell you that. Um, I say it all the time. He's, he's one of the classiest individuals ever. And so that was a real opportunity to go to Dallas to uh, Anaheim now. And it would be, you know, play out my last contract. And then we had a lockout that year to start the season. So we missed half the year. And, uh, and then I played uh, that year and things were, were going fine. I got slowed up with an injury with about a month left. I signed a three-year contract there. Um, so the coach was kind of resting me a little bit for the playoffs uh, the playoffs came and I broke my wrist again. I hurt. Well, I didn't break it. I broke a piece of bone off it. That wasn't going to require surgery. My other hand on your other hand. Okay. My other hand. And so, um, it was like, uh, in the playoffs against Detroit, the first round. And so that was that year. I had two more years left on that contract. And then that summer I was working out with Cal, uh, who I did the podcast with, who we talked about and we were trading. There's a bunch of NHL guys who live up in, uh, in Idaho where I live in the summers. 
and I was training. And by that point, my wrist was like, you know, another five surgeries on this hand, five surgeries on this hand, you know, I was 30, whatever it was, 37, 38 years old. And, um, I tore my wrist working out and I went and seen the doctor and he said, well, we can repair it and, you know, try to get you back. And I tried that. And, uh, into the second year of that contract till about Christmas time, they said, you know, this, this doesn't look that great. It's, uh, you can keep trying to rehab it. And you know how that looks because I've been through that with you, right? Another four weeks, another four weeks. It's one thing at 22 or 23 years old Mm. and still have a lot of road left. Um, it's a completely different thing at 38 when your body's just not responding to, to what you're trying to make it do. And so I had, um, I had surgery that year, uh, halfway through my second year, my contract. And so, so that ended it. And I still had, uh, you know, a, a year and a half left in my contract. Dude, how the hell do you play golf? Because I'm left-handed, thank God. It, this, I swear to God, this is a true story. When I when I got my surgery, and the doctor, this is an awesome guy, he says, "Well, this is." He goes, "What do you like to do?" And I said, "Doc, listen, I just need to play golf." And I said, "He goes, okay, so I'm going to set your wrist just a little at an angle like this." I swear to God, he, I gave him a golf grip, and he said, "Okay." He goes, uh, "He goes, you know, you're not going to be able to do." play competitive sports, but, uh, we'll make sure you have a, a quality of life after this that, uh, you'll be happy with. And so, um, that was my only concern, you know, I'm like, Oh God, just please let me, please let me be able to swing the club. Well, so, you know, this is the, the part of this thing that's you know tough, I know for you and, um, but I think it's important for people to understand like you, it's not an un uncommon story that you start taking drugs to manage pain and then those drugs just start the volume of those drugs starts to increase is Mm -hmm. when you start to increase taking it are you taking it more it's no longer really about the pain it's more about your psychological pain at this point right exactly it's your it's your feelings right and so you know when i played it's funny because it's my life has been a little bit of a conundrum professionally and then into, you know, the addiction part of it. The challenges I had was when I played, I wasn't into the pills. I, I needed to, we were always working hard, right. To come back. And, uh, I even quit drinking for like six months when I was with you in, in the summer to, to give my body the best chance. Not that I was a huge drinker, but I love to, I, I was a social guy. I remember that. Um, I was like, you're not going to do that. You did. I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am Scotty. <laughs> I, and I did it, and, uh, <laughs> and I came back and had the best year ever. So uh, there you go, <laughs> uh, you know. But um, you know, towards towards the end of my uh, career, um, I was dealing with a lot of injuries. Just taking port all shots before every game. You know, I started you know years before, but like I was, I really like that was part of my pregame routine uh, to play, just to get through. And so, you know, one day you wake up and they say, okay, you're going to have the surgery and you don't have to be at the rink tomorrow or the next day. And, um, you know, they give you a prescription and medicine works perfect when, when it's used like you're supposed to use it. Like you said, it's, um, when I started using painkillers to, to manage my feelings, you know, 
I never realized that after doing some work, it's like, well, I was like mourning a death a little bit hmm. of my career. And I thought that I was really happy when my career ended. Um, I felt like I'd accomplished things. I had felt like uh, I just, you know, I earned the where I was in life at that point. Um, I liked that, that I didn't have to show my face anymore, that I didn't have to be up for team meetings. You know, our, our, our world is so uh, regimented and scheduled during a season, even an off season, because we're training all off season mm-hmm. um, that I liked that there was, uh, I thought I liked that there was no reason to really get up in the morning. And um, you know, it, it just, it's just an all too common story of, uh, you know, I, I remember distinctly there was a day when I was, and I was taking way too many painkillers. And I remember there was a day it's like, if I don't take these today, I think, you know, I'll be okay. I won't have to take them. And I, I made the decision that not, no, I'm going to take them, then I'll manage it and then I'll quit when I want. Uh, and I, I remember the day that I did that and it just, you know, it just uh, accelerated at warp speed. It got out of control. There's no amount of, I'll manage this. I got this that will ever get you through that. And um, it just got worse. And then my dad died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that rocked me. And that really sent me kind of over the edge with uh, with using. And, you know, I, I, liked, I, I liked the opiates because... I didn't get so sloppy drinking, right? I, I couldn't, you didn't have 12. Oh, buddy, I love you. It's just, I was kind of in my own world. I could still function. And I, I thought I wasn't hurting anybody, you know, just me don't, you know, get off my back people. Um, it, but it's obviously so clear now that I'm in recovery that it's, you mm-hmm. know, it was such a selfish thing, but it, it really, I felt like I was really entitled to be doing what I was doing, that I wasn't hurting anybody. And, um, and also I kind of, you know, ending my career with an injury kind of gave me an excuse. People are like, oh, you've had, you know, 20 surgeries. You must be in so much pain. I just ate all that up like, yeah, yeah, you know, poor me, yeah. And uh, the reality was like, you know, people come back from war with no legs and arms and and live a perfectly healthy and, and happy and content lifestyle. And um, I was just in, in, in too deep and, and into my feelings, Um and it just uh, it just got out of control. It's to kind of understand it too a little bit more for the listener. Uh, you guys, it's almost like you're dissuaded. I remember talking to a few guys during their career about it, and it was almost like uh, you, you you didn't have that conversation. And then I had a conversation on a podcast a little while ago with a guy named Doug Lynch. I don't know if you know Doug. He played for Edmonton for a bit, and then went over and played in Europe, but. Uh, he was saying, you know, you just, you don't talk about not your end of your career because then you can't, or what you're going to do after, because then you're, you're not going to show up with everything that you should be showing up with every day. It's like, it's like you're, you're giving, you're giving into the future in some sense. So you guys are dissuaded from having that conversation. And in essence, then when it happens, like you said, everything is structured and then you have no structure. So like what's that, that challenge must be very difficult for all of you guys, but depending on your circumstances, like 
you have nobody to to really share that with other than your fraternity and in some sense you you guys won't even talk to each other about it to some degree, right. like because it's kind of like you don't talk about when the se- when the career's done. You know? It's not a good thing, you know. Yeah, it's um, it, it's certainly that's a good that's a good point that you bring up. You don't talk about it because you're not, you know, you just again, I'll figure it out when I get there, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it's just kind of the way we go about things, athletes, people, in general. Um, I'll figure out my backs up against the wall. Um, I felt like I had, look, I'm, I'm from a small town in Alberta. I don't have, I didn't, you know, uh, I finished high school. Um, I'm I'm not a rocket scientist. You know, I'm not going to, my dad's a truck driver. My mom's a social worker. Like I don't come from, uh, a workforce. Like I didn't have dad's business to go back and learn and inherit. Mm -hmm. But I but I made a good career. I made a good earning in in a, in in my profession in NHL, and uh, so I knew that I had a a soft landing coming out of it. You know, better than a lot of guys that that I had some money put away that I didn't have to make any decisions right away. Um, that I knew I had you know again a safety net of at least a few years to figure out where I wanted to, if I ever wanted to do anything again. Mm-hmm. What I found out very quickly is when, you know, it's Saturday night and you're playing the Leafs, um, everybody loves you. And when you're not, when you're gone, you're out of sight, you're out of mind. And, and it, it, the bright lights stop, right? And everything just kind of stops. And, you know, like I said, literally in one day waking up from a surgery, my life was completely different. It was like, there's no meetings, no accountability, no structure, no discipline other than what I was going to provide for myself. And, um, and when I got there, I'm just like, okay, this is, this is great. I can just do what I want now, you know? And, um, and having, having, uh, having myself make the choices for me, I don't make the best choices. Right. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I need people to talk to. I should bounce it off. You know, Hey Scotty, I'm thinking about this. Uh, What do you think for my training? I don't just go out and throw four plates on a bar and start doing stuff. It's like, I I, I, tell me what to do. Right. And, um, and a lot of guys go through that. There's no training for what's the second part of your career. You just, you're so, into your profession to what you're doing that it's like no one talk you know even if like my business manager or someone would say hey what about when you're done it's like don't talk to me about when i'm done like you know mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk about it when i get there it's like it, it's kind of a, a taboo thing to to think of and uh you know unfortunately a, a lot of uh a lot of professional athletes when you know when you're the the last guy standing without a chair to sit down and it's like, okay, now what? And that can be scary, man. That can be a, that can be a real challenge. And, and by the way, I'm 35 years old, you know, it's not like I'm Mm -hmm. 65 and got some huge pension. It's like, I'm 35. I'm not, I don't know anything else in my adult life other than hockey. Now what? And the world looks so big. And by the way, all those friends that you had when, oh, when you're done playing, I got you. We're going to do that. It's like everything just kind of just tapers off. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a lot of guys look, you know, a lot of guys don't handle it the way that I handled it. A lot of guys make a transition and have 
have great big healthy lives and families and everything um my my uh journey just took a little detour how how do you like how do you negotiate through all of this being a dad like what like does does being a dad end up being an anchor point for you that that gets you to think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and sort of helps you get out of all of this or what, what does that mean for you in your life? Yeah. Well, uh, there's a saying that I heard that's like, you know, uh, when you feel like all hope is gone, right. It's like, find, find something you die for and live for that. Hmm. And that's, you know, that's my kids. It always has been. They've always, that's always been the, the greatest blessing in my life. And, um, you know, I always felt like a look, man, you guys have all the, you have all that you could want in the material world. Like you don't want for anything. Like when I was a kid, I wanted new skates. I wanted, uh, you know, new shoes once in a while. I wanted these things. My kids never, I'm like, you guys will not. So you have everything, right? Just, just give me a break. Just let me now just let me be me. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the, the thinking at that time is like, I'm not hurting anybody. Look what you guys have. And you know, you should be so content and happy. But my kids were just like, dad, like, let, let's go to the mall. Let's, uh, let's watch a movie. And, you know, I felt like I wasn't, uh, I felt like they had everything and that I provided everything. So my job was, you know, in some way I was feeling like my job was done. And that was my disease. It's like, they just want their dad. You know, they don't, they don't give a shit about a new bike or new clothes. Yeah. It's all great for them. But once I got into like, once I was really in an addiction is when I think my kids were like, Whoa. And, um, and they, I would say that they're the sole reason why I got sober. I would say that, you know, I was tired of living the way I lived and I didn't, I wanted to be sober. I didn't know how I was going to get sober. Um, but I really wanted that. And I knew that I had to do it for my kids. Mm-hmm. I was in a terrible relationship. I was being a terrible example for them, you know, as a human being. Um, and I knew that, that I had to change things cause it, it would, it would, it would change their lives if I got healthier. Mm-hmm. So you went to rehab twice. You had one sort of that didn't work out. And then the second time you were able to, to beat the, beat the bear, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and you've been out of this for now two years, four years, four years since. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I called the NHL doctors and I said, look, I, this is, I got a, you know, I got a problem. I got to get into rehab. And, um, they said, yeah, you know, like they weren't shocked, right? They weren't shocked. Shocker. Uh, yeah. They're like, okay. Uh, we're expecting your call. Um, but they, man, I, I, they gave me so much support. And when I came out, I thought that I, I had it on willpower. Like I would just stop and my life would change because that's what I wanted. But, um, that, that's just not the, the case. I was super naive. I was naive with the whole thing. Like it wasn't ever a, uh, you know, a, a drug addict until my career ended. I didn't know what recovery looked like. My whole life has been based on willpower and, uh, self-will. And so I figured that's all it was going to take. 
And I kind of came out of uh, the first treatment that I was in and slipped right back into my old life in a shitty relationship and hating all the circumstances around me, didn't make any changes and, um, and just picked right, you know, picked up where you like. a lot of people don't make it back because, you know, you're in my case, in many cases, you know, you pick up where you left off. You don't just start dabbling again. Right. And, um, and in, you know, three months I was sober for six or seven months and in like three months um my life got so bad um I I just I couldn't even look in the mirror I hated the person looking back at me and I had went to a family reunion up in Canada and my mom seen me and she was like dude you know what's you're gonna die she and she didn't know what, what exactly what was going on with me. You know, I disconnected, I isolated, I did all these things that are, are so typical for for my disease. And uh, and uh, I I remember just seeing the like the fear and the sadness in her eyes. And mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to get sober. I just didn't have the the strength or really the I wasn't that motivated. And I, I swear to God, I seen her and I was like, okay. I got to go and I got to get this, you know, I got to get my life back because it's one thing for me to, to feel shitty, but mm-hmm. to see what I was doing to other people, to see that my mom was, was worried about getting a phone call at night that I might've passed away, you know, um, that was just too much to, too much to bear, especially, mm-hmm. you know, Edmonton and the hockey guy and there was like, there's, you know, there, there's people who, who, uh, look up to that and still, you know, still consider me a role model of such in, in, in my community. And so that would have been a real tough, uh, tough way to go out with all that. So that was the, that was kind of the kick in the ass that I, that I needed. And, um, and I, thankfully again, I called the NHL doctors and said, like, are you serious? Are, do you want to do that? Yes, I do. And, uh, and I was, and, you know, and, and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me going to treatment. I met my, um, fiance shortly after that. Um, just a lot of blessings came out of a pile of shit, right. Uh, For lack of a better way to put it, it was just a big steaming turd. And, uh, and as I'm I'm one of the very uh, lucky people who, can sit here and talk to you about my experience and maybe someone hears that and and maybe some of that brings back you know to being a role model in the community you know not from the hockey but like yeah you can fall down happens to to the best of us um but thankfully it's just for me um you know it's just one day at a time i got a great circle of friends i got people that i can talk to and be honest with Mm. uh you know one thing that that i i I always say in like my recovery is, and I talk to like-minded people, right? Other people who are, who are trudging the same path. It's like when I was playing, I didn't go in and go, <clears throat> you were playing, uh, you know, the Boston Bruins on a Saturday night. I didn't go in in the morning and go, yeah, I'm, you know, kind of sad. Uh, you know, I'm a little anxious about tonight. Yeah. You know, my parents aren't getting along. It's like you put on the, the shield, right? And it's like everything's great. I'm ready to go. Are you ready to go? Like, we're, and that's your life. You're just you're hiding behind all these feelings all the time, 
And when that all ends, now you've, you do have feelings that, that, uh, that you don't get through by putting on this. I'm okay. I got it, man. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. um, so it's, and you have to, it's I, a skill I've, you have to learn to, to do, to, it's, to talk it's to learned. people. And it's not natural for me. It's not natural to, to lean on other men and be like, yeah, hey, man, you know, kind of like you said earlier, it's like I got to bounce my ideas off people because my ideas are usually <laughs> the, the worst plan for me. So to, to know that I can talk to other people and not feel like, you know, judged or uh, less than is um, it's cool. I'm lucky. Well, I knew you always looked up to me, and now you're getting married for a third time, so I understand why. (laughs) Oh, man, if those walls could talk in our dressing room, me and you. (laughs) This is a book I got a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born. I bought it because it uh, blew me away. And it takes uh, numerology and astrology and takes your birth date and gives you a a purpose. So I'm going to read your purpose and a little bit about you. So you're a cancer four. Born July 13th, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Purpose, to use your ability to communicate with many different and opposing people to bring about unity without becoming attached to drama and crisis. Only dead fish swim with the stream, unknown. The Cancer 4 was a, was swimming against the current in the womb. The wise ones have learned to avoid the rocks and debris. The stubborn souls are still getting banged about. Cancer 4s are comfortable with tension and whizzes at negotiations. They can bring anybody together. Jack Camp, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, is known for his negotiating skins and skills. Ann Landers, July 4th, has used her integrity, wit, and wisdom to become one of the most widely read columnists in America. Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist, Emerson. Cancer fours do not like things dull or easy. They make great sacrifices just to keep their differences. Extremes demand caution, for they don't lead to peace. Peace is not what they seek. The meeting point of two opposing forces is where they are comfortable. Their choice is the road less traveled. They know how to turn things to their advantage because they're versatile, and versatility is power. And I usually don't read this, but the, it it always talks about the character of the person, if the spirit takes the lead or the ego takes the lead. So if you're if you're more spirit-driven, the spirit is strong, the need to help others is powerful. These souls go out on a limb and break the rules to make sure human dignity and justice prevail. They are activists in a constant state of tension and evolution. When several things are happening at one time, they love it. They, are, they wade through the emotional context, make sense of it, and use it for positive end. When they're too spiritual, they are used by others who seek them as their savior. They need to value peace and allow it into their lives. If ego takes the lead, with ego giving orders, what gets done is a lot of everything. These souls can be so talented, others can't keep up, nor do they want to try. They are they like chaos, confusion, and emotional, emotional stress. They create it or use it for their advantage because tension, hostility, and powerful emotional scenes attract them. Their personal life is a mess. Either they are unfaithful or they choose dependent people whom they can control. They can be cold or, or compassionate. Wow. And you know who's born on July 13th? Harrison Ford, brother. Wow. Hey, the force. Oh, Indiana Jones. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's really cool. You're going to send me the name of that movie that your buddy did. And you got to send me the name of that book. Cause that's, uh, that's, it's touchy. Like there's so much going on in there that I can, yeah. I can, uh, 
identify with. Yeah. So um, I've kept you for longer than way longer than I was supposed to. <laughs> we like to talk. I knew that would happen, but let's let's wrap up by where where are you where are you now? What where are you going now, bud? What's what's life got for you in, in front of you now? So we're in uh, Las Vegas. Um, I moved here when I was going through my uh, career retirement, moved here for a couple of years, do some tax stuff and, you know, get out of LA. And, um, and I really liked it. Moved back to LA cause I wanted to be closer to my kids. And then recovery was, was strong there. I knew a lot of guys in recovery. And so LA was kind of home base for a couple of years. And now we just built a house here in, in Las Vegas. And uh, it's great, man. You know, it's, um, I, I'm just, I'm really do. I feel like it, you know, blessed and grateful it gets, it gets thrown around a lot. Right. But when you've, uh, I, I've walked the line of being grateful and I've walked the line of, of feeling very, uh, you know, entitled and it's much nicer on this grateful side. It's much easier. And, um, I got an awesome fiance who's in recovery. She's, uh, uh, an unbelievable role model to, to me and to my kids. They love her. Um, and now our next project, we just built this house. We've been in for about a month and our next project is, is building a house up in Idaho again, up in, um, in Gaza. So, you know, we're staying busy. I, uh, I work for a company that, uh, you know, is in land development, high end golf courses. Uh, a lot of guys are part of it. Gretz and Brett Hall and a lot of guys. And, uh, so it's been a soft landing there um, and have some great friendships and I'm in this recovery thing and, um, you know, staying connected that way. So uh, honestly, man, I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful. You know, I don't think if I was here in, in the place of my life, you wouldn't have reached out and been like, Hey, do you want to do this? And, and this is like, it's been so nice to catch up with you and, and touching. And you really have been such a big part of my, uh, my story in Montreal. And I love you, buddy. I love you too, man. It was, uh, it's been too long. I'm I'm glad we connected again. And, uh, like I said, in my introduction, like you, I owe you a lot because you taught me a lot about hockey. Like we just, you know, spent so much time together and well, you, you, you taught me how to pass the puck. That's for sure. (laughs) Work in progress. (laughs) God, we had, I had, I had, Two, I think two sprain rest and a broken hand and you weren't overly familiar with playing hockey and, and somehow we managed to get recovery done. So kudos to both of us. <laughs> Skated my ass off for you. <laughs> Up early. We had some days, man. And, and I talked to Saku when I was in Montreal or in uh, Anaheim about it. And it's like, man, you remember those? It seems like a lifetime ago, but uh, just talking to you and seeing your face and, and like taking a trip down memory lane. We, like I said, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of peaks and valleys, you know, but I, I do look back on things. I, I, I choose to look back on things with a lot of like fondness and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and gratitude for where my life is, has been. Yeah. I remember Experience a couple of those, those, those skates at Concordia when uh, the coach let us skate with the team and yeah. would order pizza after for the guys and they yeah. were all just stoked. They loved they were... it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's like playing in the minors, man. Like yeah. when I played the minors, the guys are, you know, you order off this little pizza place menu and guys are waiting around for like their dollar change back. I mean, they're not making much money down there, mm-hmm. you know, 
And uh, so I would, I would pick up meals for the guys and, you know, pizzas for the bus after, and they were so grateful. And again, it gave me a sense of like, it's such a small, small way to give back as in the NHL, you're treated like Kings. Right. Mm. But it was, it really gave me a chance to, uh, to sit in a lot of gratitude with like the, the life that I had, you know, of being a professional athlete. And I didn't want that to end there. And guys were really, uh, they were really pumped. Just like when we skated at Concordia, those guys were so, they're so happy. I think we gave one guy practice Jersey one time and he was like crying after the thing. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good memories in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been great to go down memory lane with you. I'm really glad that things have worked out for you, dude. And that, uh, you're, um, you're healthy and you're happy and, uh, it's good to see you like that. So yeah, thank you. thanks for your time today. You know what? I love you, buddy. Thanks, man. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>